when people wrote letters in the ancient world, they began like ours do with a salutation. And as we're starting the book of Romans this week, we're going to look at the salutation here. And just as modern letters, letters say, like, dear so-and-so, and then you write your stuff, and then you sign your name at the bottom, ancient letters had a, a proper form that letters were done in as well, which was different than ours, but uh, there was still a normal, very simple form that was followed. Usually the salutation opened, letters were very brief, they were just right to the point. Uh, ancient letters always begin with the name of the one writing the letter. Now that's kind of logical if you think about it, because we always have to like open it up if there's nothing on the envelope and look down to the bottom to see who's writing first and then we go back up to the top and they would just start with the person writing. So if I wrote you a letter, it would say, Wayne, to so-and-so, you know, whatever, that kind of thing. And you go, oh yeah, that's who it's from. And you're already real comfortable with, or, or fearful or whatever the case might be, and, and horrified. Um, and that's what the way they started their letters. Um, of course, there's a more practical reason for that too in the ancient world. You can look down at a letter, but if you have a scroll, and you don't know who wrote it, then you gotta go Oh yeah. And then you start back and read the letter. So if you have a scroll, that's why we probably started with the, the guy that wrote anyway. The book of Romans begins Paul. That's how it starts. Because that's as I said, in most ancient salutations the writers were direct and to the point. But Paul isn't like most ancient writers. He does start the right way, he says Paul. Now usually they would say something like Marcus to Flavius. Greetings. That would be about it. That would be the, that's a normal form salutation type thing. It might be a little bit extended if you were writing to somebody you had a strong relationship or a strong attachment to. In fact, one actual surviving ancient Roman letter um, begins this way. Serenus to his beloved sister Isadora, many greetings. That's about as long as a Roman greeting in a letter would get. Typically, the Apostle Paul goes just a little bit longer even than that. Putting in the salutation some description of himself and usually uh, something about his authority as an apostle, because these aren't just letters. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 begins this way. It says, Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a long salutation in the ancient world, unusually long. It's full, and it contains uh, more than greetings because these aren't normal letters. These letters carry apostolic weight behind them. They're written by authority figures, apostolic authority. That is, God is speaking through these men. So this isn't a newsy letter about what Paul did with his summer vacation or something like that, or we went here or we went there. This is um, God's word. So the salutations reflect that weight. Apostles were like prophets of old. They're even higher than prophets of old because there were New Testament era prophets, but it says that they are subject even to the apostles. So the apostles are the highest earthly authority that there is in the church. But like the prophets of old, their words were chosen and shaped and molded by the Spirit of God to tell the reader exactly what God wanted the reader to know about the matters that are addressed. In fact, Peter says that when a prophet or an apostle wrote it was like being carried along, like, like, like leaves on a stream, just being borne along down the stream, that they were carried along by the Spirit of God who directed their very words in a certain way. So even the salutation has theological significance. And in 1 Corinthians 1.1, 1, 1, as I said, it says, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now that's not just his opinion, he's saying. That's revelation. 
Well, Romans begins in an even more startling fashion. I said two weeks ago that Romans is the greatest theological book in the New Testament, which it is. And what is interesting is that the most doctrinal book ever written is in the form of a letter. It's not a treatise. It's not a philosophical um, book. It's a letter to real people. There's a, a greeting at the beginning, and at the end, there's a whole chapter full of say hi to so-and-sos. Um, it's, it's in a letter form. And we should expect, I think, the salutation of the greatest theological work ever written to be unique. And it is unique. If you look at Romans 1.1, it says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, that's the from part. This is who it's from. And do you see the to part? If you see the two parts, you've got to look quite a ways down the page. That's who it's from. Now, who's it to? This letter's written to. Well, you have to go all the way down to verse 7. And in verse 7, it says, to all who are beloved of God in Rome. Now, that's a long salutation to start from Paul and work your way all the way down to verse 7. In fact, the seven verses long, and it's all one sentence. In Greek, it's 93 words long. It's a 93-word-long sentence, and it translates, most translations have about a 125-word-long sentence. Now, if you were in English class and you gave a 125-word sentence, your teacher would mark you down for run-on sentences. Guaranteed. But that is typical Paul. And I think it's wonderful, and when you outline or diagram this long sentence, whenever I teach the epistles, I, I outline every phrase because they're so carefully worded. Every phrase has meaning. Every phrase is a whole concept. And, it, and it's simply beautiful, all the truths that are contained. And, and so, if, you know, if it's a run-on sentence, I say, run on, Paul, run on, because it's great stuff. And he doesn't waste um, time giving a lot of babbling stuff. Every phrase is a, a pregnant theological truth that you could just go all kinds of places with. And the sentences are often what I call I call them tightly wrapped because it's like taking all this stuff and just wrapping it together and you've got to just peel the layers off one at a time grammatically to get all that he's saying. It's really remarkable. And I don't know anybody that writes quite the way the apostles write in the New Testament. John writes real simple. Just Paul writes just tons of stuff just all wrapped together. It's not really like a human being writes because all these ideas are all just tucked in there. It's just really amazing. All layered. Um, and you could literally um, preach a year's worth of sermons out of this one sentence. No, I'm not going to. <laughs> don't, don't take it wrong. I'm not going to do that. But I do want to focus on some of the key points in this long sentence this morning and let Paul's structure of the salutation sort of guide us. And I, I do want to focus on a couple of key points. And there's one word that connects both parts of the salutation. There's one word that you find, an important word, in the two-part the from part, which is actually where he starts, it's from Paul, and goes down to the two part. It's, also, it's in both parts. And the word is the word called. You see it in verse 1, you see it in verse 6, and you see it in verse 7. And the word called is not a verb here, but it's an adjective, and it's describing, first of all, it's describing Paul, and then he uses the same word to describe those to whom he writes. And there's a purpose. There's a purpose behind all these words in Paul's salutation. A purpose for this very long and tightly packed sentence. And the purpose is to connect Paul to his readers, most of whom he had never met. Most of the letters of Paul in the New Testament, he's writing to people he knows. 
places he's been. He's writing to a place he's never been to people mainly that he does not know. There are some people in Rome that he knows, but not many. So it's not a casual connection that he's going to argue for here. The purpose is to connect to his readers in a profound way. It's the same connection he has with his readers that binds all believing Christians together. Every believing Christian in this room is bound together by the same connection that Paul is writing about here, 2,000 years ago almost. It's a connection more powerful than blood. It's a connection more powerful than national identity. And that connection that Christians share lies in this idea of being called, of calling. Paul is saying, I am called, and he's saying, and you are called. And he's going to build this bond of unity that exists inherently through that calling. In fact, our bond of unity is that we are called by the same person. And we are called into the service of that person, and that person is no less a person than the living God himself. So Christians sometimes forget just what it means to actually be a Christian, how you become a Christian in the first place. And I don't mean when you go back and say, well, I remember when I became a Christian, it was like somebody told me about this and I believed it, or I was raised in a Christian home and I came to the point where I asked mom and dad about it and they sat me down and I prayed to receive Jesus and that's how I became a Christian. Now, I, you might remember that, but I mean before that. Long before that. Do you think it was an accident of birth or a fortunate colliding of events that allowed you to hear and believe in the gospel? Was it just like, oh, man, it's so fortunate that I ran into that person 20 years ago because if I hadn't, I just might never... No, it isn't like that. God ordains events. He orders events to fall in line with his decrees, what he commands to happen. And he orders events in your life to bring you to a place where you respond to his call. When God first spoke to the man Jeremiah, calling him to be a prophet, and it's right in the very first few verses of the book of Jeremiah, those 40-something chapters of stuff, 52 chapters, whatever it is, he says, the first words he says to him, he says, before I formed you in the womb, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you, I have appointed you a prophet to the nation. Now, you could sit there and think about that for a while and be greatly benefited by such thinking. Because God planned before he was even born that he was going to be a prophet. You see, God governs all things, and people hate that idea. Jeremiah did not decide he was going to be a prophet. God decided he was going to be a prophet even before he was born. Interestingly, Paul begins the book of Romans saying this, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. It certainly wasn't Paul's idea to become an apostle. It wasn't Paul's idea to be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. It wasn't even Paul's idea to become a Christian, if you know his story. Do you remember his background? He wasn't born Paul the Apostle. He was born Saul from a city called Tarsus. Became a zealous Pharisee, vigorously promoting his particular sect of Judaism. He was a man on the rise amongst his own people, never content to be on the sidelines, but a zealous defender of the faith. 
That kind of faith which the Pharisees exalted and which found Jesus nothing less than an enemy to be destroyed. That was what Paul's thinking was. Passionate thinking. That Christ and Christianity and everything it represented was something to be stamped out. Saul had never seen Jesus, but after the crucifixion, Saul took up the cause by persecuting the followers of Jesus. In fact, if you want to hear it from his own lips, you can just turn back a couple pages to Acts chapter 26, just right there, right before Romans there. And in verse 4, he's, um, <clears throat> he's giving an explanation for his behavior to King Agrippa. And he says in verse 4, So then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. Then verse 5, Since they have known about me for a long time previously, if they are willing to testify, that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. While thus engaged, I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. And at midday, O king, I saw in my way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Consequently, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Paul got on the road to Damascus with no other intention, no other purpose than to put Christians in Damascus in prison and by torture force them to blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ. But before you know it, he's telling the people in that same city and in Judea and elsewhere that they should repent and trust in Christ. Well, what happened? What brought about such a dramatic change? God did. He stepped in and called this man Saul to become a witness of Jesus and the resurrection because he saw the risen Christ. And that, that's a minimal requirement to become an apostle, seeing the resurrected Christ. The other necessary element, of course, is being personally commissioned by Jesus to be one, and he was. In fact, Paul gives more of a theological explanation of his apostleship in Galatians chapter 1. Let me read that for you. You can turn there if you want. It's another rather lengthy section. Look for the concept of calling 
in Galatians 1 as I read this, starting at the 11th verse. He says, I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which, I was, that was, which was preached by me is not according to man. Verse 12. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries and among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then, three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days, but I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing, He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. That's Paul's story, but it is God's work from beginning to end. Like Jeremiah, Paul was set apart. He was called to Christ and to his ministry before his infant eyes ever opened on this world. He was called from the womb before that. God chose him for his own purposes and glory, and indeed, glory was ascribed to God because of Paul's testimony. That's what he says in verse 24. So, when you go back to Romans 1.1, Paul is a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle. Then he says, set apart for the gospel of God. He was set apart. Chosen. For a purpose. Now, purpose is a really big issue for modern people because we live in a world where there's, we're told that we don't have one. Or our purpose is to further our evolutionary development or something like that. I mean, what is life all about anyway? So people grope for meaning. And because as a culture, we've walked away from the foundation of our culture, there's not really a purpose out there. You have to find your own. Do I have a reason for existing? Is all I am a collection of desires crashing into a world of possible temporary satisfactions? Is that all it is? Genuine fulfillment? What is that? It's very elusive. Very elusive. Well, Paul didn't need to ask himself questions like that. Nor did Jeremiah. Nor should we. Paul's purpose was determined for him and revealed to him, and he embraced it completely. How could he not? Right? And he just told. God called him. God called him. That's a sufficient purpose. If the God of the universe asks you to do something, you could say, hey, I think I found my purpose. I think that's not unreasonable. The God who made him, the God who created the world, the God of limitless, boundless perfections and powers called him and set him apart for a purpose. For what purpose? He says, the gospel 
of God. That word gospel means good news or glad tidings. Paul has been called by the living God who made everything to tell good news to people. That's a good job. God has some good news and Paul is called to share it. Well, what could be better than that? Jeremiah was called too, remember, but he was called to deliver bad news, basically. This country's going to be destroyed. He was supposed to say that for 30 years. And God told him when he started, nobody's going to listen to you. That's not a good job. That's why they call him the weeping prophet. It is. His job was to tell them that God was going to destroy the nation of Israel, that this, he was going to whistle and call this nation from the north, that it was going to come down and destroy them. And he was told right up front, no one's going to listen to you. You're just keeping them accountable. They're not going to listen to you. And they didn't. And he was thrown in a well and all kinds of horrible problems, persecuted mercilessly. Paul was persecuted too, but he had all these good news, you know, to share the good news of God. And it was good news that was anticipated. Romans chapter 1, verse 2. The gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So Paul's message was good news that was drawn out of ancient biblical promises. The gospel is a promise fulfilled. So Paul had good news. He, he could actually go out and tell people, he says, God is about to fulfill promises. And the good news is he's doing it now. That's good news. What's the promise all about? Verse 3. Concerning his son. God has good news drawn from ancient promises concerning his son. The gospel is about God's son. Now, follow me as we start to unfold. We're unfolding the sentence. You can see how we're, we're taking away a little at a time. Our long sentence has brought us to the gospel of God, has told us that this gospel concerns God's Son, and now this expression, concerning His Son, is followed by three subordinate clauses telling us about the Son of God. So he's saying, concerning His Son, who was, verse 3, and then he says, who was, verse 4, and then he says, through whom, verse 5. So you've got these three clauses explaining about the gospel through God's Son. Okay, so that's where we are. You following with me? who was, who was, through whom. We're peeling off layers. That's how the sentence is built in this part of the sentence. So here are three things about God's Son. That's good news, the subject of the good news Paul was called to preach. Number one, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh. He was a human being. God's Son was a human being. And a descendant of King David. That's an amazing thing. That's a critical point in Christian theology that the Son of God was a human being. And a descendant of David in his humanity. King David was his ancestor. So, hey, promises were made to David. Promises were made to David. Second Samuel 7, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And he's the fulfillment of that promise. God's son. He was a real man, a real descendant of David. Then he says, who was, here's the second thing, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead 
according to the spirit of holiness. Now that Greek word translated declared in, in the verse 4 there, who was declared the Son of God, carries the idea of being like marked out. That's the word that's used for like boundary markers and things like that. A, a, a de declaration, a sign that declares something to be so. And he was designated or, or declared by a sign or a marker. And what's the marker? What's the sign? Paul says it was the resurrection. He's marked out as the Son of God with power. It's an unmistakable, powerful marker. What is it? The resurrection from the dead. Interestingly, you know, Jesus performed a lot of signs. You know, there's a raging storm and he says, be still, and it stops. That's, a, that, you know, that's enough for me. He heals people of every imaginable condition and disease. Wicked spirits throw themselves down at his feet and do whatever he says. All kinds of signs. But you know, this sign is different. It's interesting because the, the Jews came to Jesus one time and, and they, they asked him to authenticate himself. But he always resisted doing that. He, he, he didn't want to do, he never did miracles for show, you know. Oh, let's see a miracle, come on, do, do me a miracle. Never did that. He always did miracles to benefit somebody and to authenticate to his followers who he was, obviously. But he didn't do it just to please people. But they came to him one day and they said, What sign do you show us? John chapter 2, verse 18. The Jews answered him and said, What sign do you show us seeing that you do these things? And then he said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. That came back to haunt him, saying that, because they used that against him at his trial. He threatened to destroy the temple, but John says he, said he was talking about the temple of his body. That's the only sign. They said, show us a sign. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. That's the only sign you're going to get. Interestingly, on another occasion when they asked him for signs, he said the only sign an evil generation is going to get is the sign of Jonah, who was three days and three nights, what, in the belly of a whale and then was back alive again. That's the sign. Who else ever, ever has ordered himself back from the dead? Do you know anybody that's done that? I don't know anybody that's done that. Nobody. There's no religious leader, there's no scientist, there's no anybody that said, I'm going to die and I'm going to bring myself back from the dead and did it. So the resurrection, the conquest of death, marks Jesus out as much more than a son of David, a man with a good pedigree. It marks him out as the son of God. And as Paul puts it in Colossians 2.9, in him all the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. So there wasn't anything about God that wasn't in Christ, this man who came to earth who was a real man. Speaking of the resurrection on the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up. It's just 40 days after it happened. Peter stands up and gives this big sermon in Jerusalem. Thousands of people come into the church that day. But the concluding words of the sermon are, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You remember? Lord and Christ. 
So we have our, our who was statements. Who was the son of David according to the flesh? Who was declared the son of God with power according to the spirit? Jesus Christ our Lord, he says. That's who Jesus is. But we also have to consider what he accomplished. And he just starts on that theme because the whole book's about that. But that's the through whom part in verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. So now Paul is talking about his apostolic ministry. But that ministry is to bring people from all nations into what he calls the obedience of faith. That's a process that has been going on for 2,000 years and is just about done. It's a beautiful phrase, the obedience of faith. That deserves a sermon in itself. But let's just say this morning that faith and obedience are always bound together. Faith is obedient. Jesus is accomplishing a reconciliation of people from every group of people on the earth, bringing them together by faith in him. And the purpose of all this, the very end of verse 5, for, for his name's sake. It's for him. All of Paul's life and work, all that he lost, and he lost everything when he became a Christian, literally. All that he endured, shipwreck, imprisonment, beatings, many times, stoning, ultimately being beheaded. All that he endured in bringing about the obedience of faith among Gentile peoples was for Jesus. It was for his sake, which is exactly as it should be, because he is the Lord. Now, Here's where we connect back into this sentence. The sentence is sort of like an arch. And we started with this idea of his calling. We've gone to all this great doctrinal truth about Christ, and now we're reconnecting back here again with this idea of calling in verse 6. He says, among whom, this is our unity with, with him. He's talking about his unity with himself and the church, but it's true of all Christians. Among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ, he says. We're called too. Yes, absolutely. That's his connection with them. He was called by Christ, and they are called by Christ. He was called as an apostle set apart for the gospel, which is all about Jesus Christ and taking the truth about him out to the Gentiles, just the people Paul is writing to in Rome, who are also called of Jesus Christ. So the preacher is called by God to go out and preach the gospel and those that respond to the gospel are called upon by God to respond. So in verse 1, Paul is called as an apostle, but there aren't many apostles. It's only a few. But what are the Roman Christians called to be? What are you called to be? Are you called to be an apostle? I'm not. I mean, there aren't any apostles around because anybody here seen the resurrected Lord? I haven't. And I've been personally commissioned by him to be an apostle? No, I am not So what about the rest of this? Verse 7. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, and anywhere by extension, called as, what word do you have in your Bible? Saints. Saints. Yeah. That's the part that describes our calling, yours and mine. Called as saints. Me, a saint? I don't feel like a saint. Well, you better start applying some effort into finding out what a saint is, because that's what you're called to. Every Christian is a saint. Saints are not statues. They're not people that show up in Polaroid snapshot pictures with halos over their head. 
You know, I can tell the saint because we were taking this family portrait the other day, and there's a halo over Mary's head. I mean, that's you know, that's not the kind of that's not what a saint is. The word saint, the word itself, is directly related to the word holy or sanctify. It's the same Greek word, and it means set apart. It means something is chosen and set apart for a purpose. You know, in the temple they had sacred objects, sanctified, holy, the same word, holy, holy objects. What makes a dish to carry incense or something different from a dish that carries water in your kitchen. It's set apart for a sacred purpose. That's all. That's what the word holy means, set apart. People are set apart too for special purposes, sacred purposes. And every believing Christian is called of God to be a saint, a holy one, a chosen vessel for God's use. Everyone. That's amazing, isn't it? There aren't a special category of people that are saints. And there's the rest of the church around them. Every Christian is to be is called by God as a saint. That is consistent throughout the New Testament. There's no such thing as a special class. You don't have to be beatified and have people study your life and get appointed by some cleric somewhere to be a saint. God calls every Christian to be saints, biblically. Well, what are we set apart for? Well, look at the context. Verse 6 among whom you also are the called of whom? Jesus Christ. So it's about him. We're set apart for him, just like Paul was. Whatever he is about, whatever Jesus is about, well, that's what we're called to be about as well, right? Verse 7, beloved of God in Rome called as saints. A saint serves Christ, and a saint is beloved of God. We are set apart from the rest of humanity for divine purposes. That means that it is bound up in our calling how we conduct ourselves in the world. And all you have to do is read the first two or three pages of the Bible and you know exactly why we have to be that. Because the whole world has fallen away from God. Us too. But out of, out of all those fallen people, he's calling some people out to be different. To represent him. And not just to be like a representative, but to be beloved of him. To live in his love, to be satisfied by his presence, to be so full of joy and being bound up with him that it actually draws other people to him and glorifies him. Paul was glorifying God simply by his life. Because once this very wicked man was not a wicked man anymore, he was devoted to Jesus. If you just say to anyone, I'm a Christian, you are declaring yourself a representative of that kingdom. More than that, you're declaring yourself beloved of God. That's what you're saying when you say, I am a Christian. It's an awesome calling. It is a sacred existence. And it calls for a heart filled with joy at being a child of God. And it means making choices that non-Christians would not make and that they would not understand. It really means that. It means telling the truth even if you lose something because of it. I was on jury duty a couple of weeks ago. It's always interesting being in a court and watching the different stories come. 
Christians tell the truth. If the, psalm, the psalmist says a Christian swears to his own hurt because it's different than the world. The world doesn't think that way. The world thinks, what can I get away with? How can I manipulate the situation to my advantage? Christians aren't allowed to think that way. A saint does not think that way. What is the truth? Christians are called upon to love one's enemies. I've, I've never found another religious philosophy that teaches that. That's unique. Utterly unique. Love your enemies. We're called upon to stick it out in the commitments that we've made to keep our vows. All sorts of things we do differently. Speak as loudly and probably louder than saying the words, I am a Christian. Because a saint is set apart for a special purpose. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says that we are called into, called into fellowship with God's Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The book of Romans will explain that fellowship. 1 Thessalonians 2.12 says we have been called into his own kingdom and glory. The book of Romans will explain the nature of that kingdom and that glory. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 says, We are called through the gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8 explains that glory. 2 Peter 1.3 says, We are called to his own glory and virtue. The book of Romans in chapter 5 describes that virtue. The Christian's calling is a radically transforming power of God applied to people that he redeems in this world. Long before we see heaven, that power is available and applied to us. We are set apart for him now in this life. We're not just wandering through life, clutching at what happiness we can find. That's not what a saint does. Our happiness is in him and as our hearts are satisfied in Him, we have liberty to be like Him. We're so satisfied by God that we are free to love like Jesus, who served the lost in love on behalf of His Father. And we can do that too. No, not as well as He can, obviously. But we can. And Paul tells us how that happens in the book of Romans, how God's love is shed abroad in our hearts. That is your calling. So Paul concludes his salutation with the greeting that he puts in all of his letters, basically. A reminder of two words, two words which mark the Christian life and which make it most satisfying. He says, verse 7, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time this morning and for the rich, rich truths contained just in the greeting of the book of Romans. And as we begin to unfold these wonderful truths over the months ahead, Lord, we just ask you to open our hearts to what is really here, that we would uh, cast aside human opinions and submit ourselves to the weight and the majesty of the word of God as expressed through the apostle you called. We thank you uh, for these great things. In Jesus' name, amen.